If you have your Bible, why don't you grab uh, your Bible and open up to 1 John chapter 4. And if you have, don't have a Bible with you, you can open up to the Bible there in the pew. And that's on page 856. And as you're finding 1 John chapter 4, if you've been with us in this letter, we're almost done with this letter, which is amazing. And then we've got two more to go, which are really much, much shorter than this one. If you've been with us, you've noticed the Apostle John doesn't pull any punches when he writes his letters. Uh, as we've seen so far in this sermon series, John has no qualms about making some absolute and really non-negotiable assertions in terms of what it means to believe in God, and even more specifically, what it means to follow Jesus. What you're going to find this morning is that as we continue on, John's only just getting started in raising our eyebrows. We're going to, in just a moment, we're going to read and you're going to hear John talking about something that he's talked about already. If you've been part of this sermon series throughout, you're going to feel like a little bit like we're on repeat with John. Because just a chapter back, not that far, far back, John was speaking to us about love. And the reality is, is the love appears throughout this letter more than dozens of times because it's really the theme. And John's repeated insistence up to now has been on our relationship, the relationship between love, our love of God, and our love for each other. In fact, John's really talked about three kinds of love. God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for one another. And what he wants us to understand is that our love for God and our love for one another are inseparably linked. And when we start to read in just a second, it's going to feel like John's just saying the same thing over again. He's going to just be repeating what he's already said before. And this is true. But within that, John is also going to take us even deeper into our conception of what love is, as well as our expression of love, as he expresses what I believe is one of the most astounding claims in all of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles open, as you read along with me, see if you can, if it jumps out at you as it does for me, as we read from 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who has been born of God, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is, how we, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is, how we love. this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar for whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And this is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. I don't know if you heard it. I don't know if it, if it like jumped out at you. I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't. The three words, startling words that John writes here because the reality is we've heard this word, this verse, these three simple words so many times that I think the boldness of what John declares eludes us. John, as I mentioned, has already stressed love is the theme of this letter. It's the imperative of our, of our discipleship in Christ. John, in this section of the letter, repeats points that he's made earlier, such as love is our birthmark as children of God, our birthmark showing that we aren't living independently for ourselves, but that we are dependent and relying upon our Father. John repeats our love of one, towards one another rather than our hatred is the evidence that we know God and that we represent God truthfully. John repeats things that he said before, but in the midst of that, he also gives us something different as he purports, if you missed it, to define the person, the character of God, with this single word, love. God is love, John writes. In order to fully appreciate how surprising, how provocative John is being here, Maybe we need to recall the seriousness, the sensitivity with which the Jews handled the name and the image of God. The name of God was so holy, you might remember, so respected, it would not be spoken aloud so as not to be taken lightly or in vain. And representing the fullness of the person of God was deemed impossible, so much so that it was a matter of the law not to attempt to depict the totality of God through an image or an idol. That's why you find in much of the Bible, talk of God's character or person is done through metaphor. Those who put down the words of the Bible, predominantly I'm talking about the Old Testament, were inclined to describe what God is like, rather than to nail down with any certainty who God is. But right here, right now, John bucks this trend as he declares without any hesitation or qualification that God is is love. Love, John writes, is not an attribute or characteristic of God, but rather love is the very nature of God, the essence of who God is, the quality of God's own self. God is love. Now those three words we take for granted and some have even misunderstood what John is stating here. It's, it's in our day and age, but it's been in times before, people have taken John's three provocative, powerful words here, and in a time of skepticism, in a higher power, and at the same time where there's a growing interest, as we talked about last week in spirituality, some have taken what John's written here and said, hey, you know what? It's easier to accept, and therefore, why don't we just bring everyone together by promoting belief in love rather than God? And the logic and the appeal here being, well, if what John writes is true, if God is love, then why have two words for the same thing? If people are put off by God, then let's just say we worship love. Let's say we believe in love. But John's affirmation right here, in case you missed it, is not an equation. John doesn't say God equals love, and therefore love equals God. God is love, but love is not God. And this is, again, getting us into really appreciating what John is saying to us here. To express this differently, love doesn't define who God is. 
God defines what love is. Now again, I'm scratching your brain this morning again. Stop and think about this for a moment. Think about the implications of this. What John is trying to communicate. Let it sink in and we'll start to begin to understand. Love doesn't define who God is. God defines what love is. From last week, if you were with us, earlier in chapter 4, John lays out for us in preparation for what he's writing here that we can't know who God is unless God reveals himself to us. If you were with us last week, I gave you a visual way of thinking about that, that we don't look up and discover and find God. This is what separates Christianity from other faith beliefs. We don't say, well, we look up and we find God. Christianity, John states that's impossible. We'll never get there. The only way we know who God is is not because we reach up and find God, but because God comes down to us. Unless God reveals himself, we don't know who God is. Now take that provocative, that powerful statement and add it now to what John adds. God is love. Think about it. If God is love, then that means, if in the same way we can't know who God is unless God reveals himself to us, if God is love, then that means we don't know what love is unless God reveals love to us. This is meaningful, this is powerful, because we throw the word love around a lot. We use that word all the time. We apply it to lots of different things. And what John is basically saying is, even though we think we know what love is, even though we throw a word like love around a lot, we don't know what we're talking about. We are attempting to use, to describe a state of being we know nothing about until God reveals himself and shows us what love is. So just for a moment, think of all the ways you use that word, you've applied that word, and understand that John is basically saying you're using the word incorrectly. You think you know what you're talking about, but you don't. So what is love? You remember that song from the 90s? That's basically, you know, so what is love? Who, how is who God is, that's where we're kind of left with, how is who God is, what God reveals about himself, so radically different from what we call love? If that's the, the, the point that John's trying to make, then, we ha- then when he goes on, he's trying to now help us to understand what is love? How is it different from what we call love? And John, in this, in this, cha- in this chapter, does his best to answer this question when he writes, this is love. Not that we loved God, notice what I'm doing here, but that God loved us. Within this statement is the key to understanding the difference between what we call love and the God who is love. So, let's talk about what we call love, how we typically make that association and apply that word, okay? What we call love is always a response to something that is already there. And that something is typically something good. Hence, the lo- what we call love is often derived from our gratitude or some other positive emotion. I love John because John always has my back. You see? A response. Or what we call love is also a response out of a desire. A desire to fill an emptiness inside of us. Something is lacking, Right? And we are attracted to something or someone that we perceive can fill that longing. And so we begin, as we say, to fall in love, right? I'm lonely. 
I'm very, very lonely, and I go to the mall, and as I go to the mall, I walk by a pet store, and in the window of the pet store is this cute Italian greyhound puppy. And he looks at me, and he's got those eyes, and he's wagging his tongue, and all of a sudden, in the midst of my loneliness, I am attracted to this dog because this dog likes me. This dog can love me. This dog can, can be my companion. I can love him. And the next thing you know, I leave the mall with a brand new puppy. I see Dante (laughs) in that pet store, my real dog actually, by the way, and perceive a faithful companion and begin to fall in love with him. Human love, what we call love, is always a response to something. Something good, something lacking, we get attracted. But what John is isolating is unlike human love, what we call love, the love born of God, the love that John says is God, is not a response to something desirable in us. Did you hear that? It's not gratitude. God doesn't love us out of gratitude because God gives us everything we have. So everything we have, we have nothing to give God, right? What are you going to give God that God hasn't given you? So it's not out of gratitude where God's like, oh, thank you for giving me what's already mine. It's not longing. If you were with us last week, I touched on this with Trinity Sunday. It's not that God is lonely. One way to understand the mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God as three in one, is you remember what I said? God is in this self-contained relationship of perfection, of mutuality, of balance, of love. God's not missing or lacking something, therefore he looks upon us and says, oh, I just fell in love with you guys. God doesn't fall in love. The love of God, the love that is God, is not a response to us, It says, John writes, it's not that we love God, but that God loves us. Such love is motivated out of who God is, out of God's self-giving nature. Once more, to keep building this for you, unlike human love, our love, which is a response to goodness that's already there, God's love, God as love, creates goodness gives value, defines worth, whether that goodness is there or not. So God doesn't create us out of gratitude, out of longing. God creates us out of love, the love that God is, and in doing so, God gives us value, defines our worth. And this creation of goodness out of God's love, of giving value, of defining worth, isn't just when we're born, when we come into this world. It also explains how God interacts with us. It relates to God's ongoing will to bring light out of darkness, good out of evil, life out of death. God's love is about bringing goodness where it doesn't exist. Not in response, but out of nothing. Think about this. Hopefully you're, you're there. If, if being fully contingent, if God's love is fully contingent, not on who we are or what we have to offer, but it's all about who God is, then that means this helps us to better understand when the Bible says, and we repeat, that the love of God is unconditional. It's absolute. It's fully committed. Maybe I can bring home this by, by, by just stepping back and and dialing it down even a little bit more. (laughs) Our love fluctuates and fades, doesn't it? Right? Our love can fluctuate and fade. Our our love (laughs) can, can change. 
Dante was so cute, and I loved him so much when I brought him home, and then he peed on my carpet. <laughs> and I don't love him so much anymore. Or he spills his food all over the place, or will be insistent if he doesn't get a walk, and suddenly my love kind of, eh, you know. Our love fluctuates and fades. But when you understand the love that is God, here's the thing. With God, it's never it's never with God, I love you because. It's never with God, I love you if. The love of God, the love that is God is an unabashed, unreserved, and eternal, I love you. I love you. And we, like I said earlier, we, we talk in our experience of love, we've all had this at least once in our life, of falling in or falling out of love, right? You know, you, you fell in love with them and then all of a sudden we talk about, well, I kind of fell out of love or I don't love you anymore. We throw that around all the time. But with God, it's not so. God doesn't fall in love. God doesn't fall out of love. Let me put it this way. And this, this is so simple what I'm about to say, but it, you could chew on this all day long and I'm telling you, I think if it's, it's worth reflecting on because I think it, when you let it get inside you, maybe you'll start to understand what John is saying here. Here it is. We fall in and out of love. But with you and I, there is nothing we can do to make God love us more than God does now. Do you hear that? There is nothing you can do to make God love you more than God does now. And right behind it is this same statement. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less than God does now. Now, now we're getting at it. Now we're getting at the nub of it because our experience of love is not like that at all. We are constantly dealing with the stress or frustration whether we're giving love or receiving it of how can we show someone we love them more? How can we have someone love us more? How can we make sure no one loves us less? With God, there is nothing we can do that will make us love us more than he does now and there is nothing that we can do that will make God love us less. And now suddenly, we're getting somewhere. We're getting somewhere and, and suddenly we're, we're broaching an understanding of love that sometimes we just get on the cusp of but it, it always kind of eludes us. You know, it's, we can reach up, we can perceive it but again, unless God delivers it to us, reveals it to us, we can't get there. And what I'm saying, what John is revealing, it's almost too good to be true and, and I, I'm gonna confess to you and I, maybe it's wrong as a pastor but I'm, much, I'm kind of a cynic. I'm kind of a cynic sometimes, and I hear John, and I'm, it's starting to get through to me what John is trying to convey to me, and I step back and I go, okay, John, man, this sounds too good to be true. How can I know love like this, such perfect love, and that's what this is, perfect love. How can I know a God like this, a God who is love is real? I mean, I'm not alone in this, right? We've all had our hearts broken before. Can I get a raise of hand? Tell them, raise your hand if you've had your heart broken. Come on, I know you all have had your heart broken. We've all had our hearts broken before, haven't we? We've all gotten our hopes up about a love that we thought was the one, right? We call it the one. We thought this is the one. This is the love that's gonna last forever. We've all been on the receiving end of promises of undying love before. How can we know? Right? How can we be certain this love is any different? Well, John has spelled it out before and he doesn't hesitate to spell it out again. He has a standard answer and it's not a pat answer, it's a deep, rich answer. When John here writes, we can know 
that this love is real, this perfect love is ours, that, that the, the love that is God the Father is evidenced, John writes. It's witnessed, it's experienced, he even adds, not by any mere talk of undying love, but John says it's evidenced, it's witnessed, it's experienced by the Word made flesh, God and Jesus Christ who comes into the world to die for us all. And again, we're so familiar with John's sort of summation of the gospel, we can kind of go, yeah, yeah, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Uh-huh. But John keeps repeating that answer because when you really unpack it, and he just rewrites it in a different way here, when you really unpack it, it you really begin to see the evidence of God's love. God loves us first, John writes. And as mentioned previously, the idea that God loves us first doesn't just apply to us being born, that God brings us into creation out of love, but it also applies to our salvation. God saves us out of love. God comes to us. And in the midst of understanding what's wrong with ourselves and what's wrong with this world, this is totally backwards, right? You understand that. Because normally, on our level, when there's a conflict between us, if something happens where we're at odds with each other, if I wrong you in some way, right? We all know the unwritten rule. We all know how it's supposed to work. If I wrong you, the unwritten rule is you're supposed to wait. You will wait until I initiate. I'm supposed to initiate and say I'm sorry. As the offending party, I'm supposed to come to you and say, man, I screwed up. I'm really sorry. Can we make up? That's how the ball gets rolling, right? But John declares God doesn't love us in response to our apology. God's love, hear this, creates the possibility of our salvation by making the first move, even though it's our move to make. Difference, our love, God's love. That's the first piece of how we can know that this love is real. God makes the first move. He sends his son. But there it is again. God's love has further revealed its evidence in the fact that God doesn't send a proxy. God doesn't send a representative. God comes in the flesh. Have you ever had that where you've been at odds with someone and sometimes you're so upset or you're so wounded that you basically say, I can't talk to that person. I just can't even see them right now. So you can go ahead and speak for me and let them know we're okay. Or let them know we can be okay. God doesn't send a representative, a proxy. God comes in the flesh. John writes, for, and he's giving personal testimony here. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. God comes in the flesh. That's how we know this love is real. And John goes a little bit earlier. He has given us his spirit. So even if you weren't there like I was, John writes, to see God in the flesh in Jesus Christ, he has given all of us his spirit so you can know that God comes in person, that God loves in person. God gave us not just part of himself, but the fullness of love that he is. And finally, John underscores the proof of God's love that we know that it's real when he talks about how the Lord became an atoning sacrifice for our sins, an atoning sacrifice so that we might live through him. You know, sometimes when I share the gospel with other people, sometimes when I try to present what John is presenting here, people ask, well, if God loves us so much, why doesn't God just let bygones be bygones and forget the whole thing, you know? If God loves us so much and if God is almighty and powerful, then why doesn't God just hit the reset button? You know, like at Staples? And no harm, no foul, it's all good. And my answer in those conversations is John's answer. The love of God 
the love that is God is proved in a God who will not look the other way. A God who takes seriously the violence, the injustice, the darkness of this world, who doesn't pretend it doesn't exist, who refuses to ignore and deny the consequences of all the wrong we've done or the wrong that's been done to us. That's real. The love of God, the love that is God, is a God who doesn't look the other way, but the love of God, the love that is God, is also the God who willingly cleans up the mess, who pays the price, who rights the wrongs that we ought to be responsible for, but clearly can't manage on our own. A greater theologian than I basically put it this way once. Only humanity should, but only God could. And the fact that God in Christ did, even though we didn't deserve it, even though we refused to accept it, even though we rejected him for it, that is, John says, how we know not only that God's love is real, but that God is love. And John, if you were paying attention, goes on to write that the implications, as we start to begin, it begins to under, we begin to understand God is love, the implications of this love are staggering. Staggering. Such perfect love, did you catch this? Such perfect love, John declares, casts out fear. It jumps off the page every time. This love, John writes, casts out fear. We all have differences between us, but among the things that we have in common is fear, right? We have all, we can all be, we've all been afraid. We've all experienced, maybe even some of us right now are living with fear. And when we, we, we broach that topic, what's the underlying basis for all of our fears? They all have different flavors and, and wrinkles to them, but what's the underlying basis of all our fears? John says, he writes it, fear involves punishment, and a verse previous to that, just one verse before, he infers that fear is also related to judgment. So if you will, what do all of our fears have in common? In a general sense, what drives our fears, all of them and all their differences, is getting into trouble. When our choices lead us or put us into situations that will cause us harm, pain, or loss. The judgment is the revelation of our mistake or error. The punishment is the negative consequence because of that mistake or error. We all can relate to fear and being afraid. I've given it to you in a general sense, but John specifically, when he writes here, is referring to our, what our ultimate fear is or what our ultimate fear should be. When he writes about the coming day of judgment, John is talking about our ultimate fear is meeting our maker answering for all the choices of our lives and facing the consequences of those choices. The day when we stand before the person who created us and are accountable for all of the choices that we've made and then bear the consequences of those actions. And at some point, whether it's right here and right now or on our deathbed, we all encounter that ultimate fear too. And all of our fears ultimately lead to that one. Accountability, ultimate accountability. How many of us are living based on fear? How many of us live in a constant state of anxiety, whether it's fe fe fearing what's gonna come at the end of all things or whether it's just fearing what's gonna come tomorrow? How many of us are living fearful deep down that something awful is going to happen to us? How many of us are constantly fixated on the three great fears that we have? Fear of our past, 
fear of today or fear of tomorrow, what's coming. How many of us, that's where we live? How many of us, in fact, face those fears, fear of our past, fear of our present, fear of tomorrow? We actually face those fears. We're so overwhelmed by them that our way of dealing with our fear is to punish ourselves. We punish ourselves with stress, with tension. We punish ourselves with more and more bad thoughts about what might be, what could happen. John is speaking into that state of being, that life that many of us, even those who who follow Christ can find ourselves into. John is saying the perfect love of God, if if you receive it, if you embrace it, if you let it pour over you, that can drive out your fear. If we receive and embrace this love, John writes, if we submit and depend and rely upon this God who is love in Christ, who lives in us through the Holy Spirit, we don't have to be afraid. We will no longer be afraid. As we abide and dwell in the presence of God, and that abiding and dwelling in the presence of God, John says, is the ongoing assurance and security of perfect love As we abide and dwell in that perfect love, we will realize we are not unlovable as the world so often taunts us. The world that plays on our fears and insecurities. We're all subject to it. You all experience this. We experience it together every day, right? We live in a world that drives us, that motivates us, playing upon our fears and insecurities. Constantly fixating on us, how can I make sure that I'm loved more? How can I make sure I'm loved less? Think about all the things you're exposed to that tap into that fear in the name of love. And John says, be done with it. Be done with fear and instead receive the perfect love of God. Because as we abide in this perfect love, we will realize we're no longer unlovable and in fact we'll discover our true identity, our real name, beloved. And we will no longer be afraid. And we will no longer need to beat ourselves up or to let others do so. And even when we envision what's to come, In the future, whether we envision it now or on our deathbed, the inevitability of facing our creator, John writes, we don't have to be afraid. We will have confidence, John writes, because the one who will judge us is the one who loves us. And therefore, we don't need to be afraid of being punished because forgiveness is ours. Really important, because this often gets lost to understand something in Christian belief. Across the board, we we believe there is judgment. We believe a day of judgment is coming. You can't right the wrongs without a reckoning. Each one of us, we're all going to stand before our God. Any gospel that tells you otherwise is not the truth. But the truth is, even though we will all stand before our God and be held accountable, that accountability that will evaluate our stewardship and respond accordingly, what we did with what we have been given, the opportunities we have, that judgment will not affect our relationship with God. Do you understand? That, that, that judgment of our stewardship will not trump the love of relationship that God has with us in Christ. So we can be confident. We can be confident in the end, and we need to be confident in the present of living out of the opportunities we have been given. And that's why John goes next to this huge shift. When we are no longer motivated to live out of fear, fear of our past, fear of our present, or fear of tomorrow, we can now live out of love, John writes. For John, it's the natural consequence. 
God creates us out of love. God saves us out of love. And in creating and saving us, God makes us lovable. Being created in the image of God, we are capable of love. Jesus coming and saving us from sin and death once again renews, emboldens that capacity for love within us. That's why John writes, love comes from God. We love because he first loved us. And this love that John keeps pointing to, that this is our birthmark, that we love one another, I, I can't hit this enough for each one of us. It's not about us mustering up the love within us in response to God. That's, it's not possible. We're all of a sudden, we're so grateful for what God has done. We so long to let God know we love him, so we try to love one another. That is not what John is saying. And if that is what you hear, you are going to find yourself perpetually frustrated, depressed, and broken down. You're going to feel like a failure because you're not going to be able to do it. That's the whole point. Our love for one another that John calls us to is not simply imitating doing what Jesus did. Okay, this is key. Our love for others, for John, is like the love that is God, what I just said way earlier. Remember how I told you the difference between our love and the love that is God is our love is a response, God's love is not a response. So in the same way, the love that God seeks to come out of us is not a response to others, what they do or don't do, or the longing within us. The love that God seeks for us to exude, to let come out of us, is our participation within the very heart of God. We are changed by the love of God. The love of God changes us, and the outcome of that change is that we love like Jesus. John writes it. In this world, we are like Jesus. Through the Holy Spirit that John says we have in us, The love that is God creates love that rises within us. This love that seeks to be revealed and shared. So what I'm saying to you is you you have to let go. We have to let go of our, our old definitions, our understandings of love. And instead, it's the more that we submit, the more that we rely, the more we just throw ourselves on this perfect love of God. God builds this love within us. And it just comes pouring out of us. It just seeks to flow out of us onto, onto other people. This is why, maybe this helps you, this is why the kind of love Jesus talks about, the kind of love John invokes here, real love, perfect love, unconditional, absolute, sacrificial love, love that endures all things, love that embraces even our enemies, is something we can't foster ourselves. It's not possible. Only God can create that kind of love in us. And that's why when you try to live this out loving on your own, you're always going to hit a wall. But when instead of trying to love like that on your own, you just press into, bask in, I mean, just reflect on God's love for you, suddenly you find yourself changed. Suddenly you find yourself with a capacity, a means of loving that was not in you before. John is insistent. That's why he hits this so hard. A follower of Jesus cannot but love. Why does John write this? Because here's here's what it is. This is the landscape. All is forgiven. Christ is before us. All is forgiven. The Spirit is within us. There's nothing to to fear. Therefore, love is all that remains. Love is all that's left. 
Both the drive and the capacity are present because again, all is forgiven and there is nothing to fear. So just let the love of God that is left that is within you come out. That's the command of the Father. For John, the divine imperative to love one another is based upon the divine intervention that God first loved us. And that's why John is so black and white, not to slap us back, not to beat us up, but to say, get out of the way of yourself. And what's even more (laughs) for me, wow, is if you read John carefully here, John has this statement where he says, it's in loving others, letting that love of God be unleashed in us. This is also how God's love continues to be perfected and made complete in us. It's this symbiotic relationship. Love, in other words, the the love that is God can only be understood, can only be developed, can only be perfected in us by practice. And this, again, smacks in the face of how we talk about love, right? We think you can read a book about love. We think you can watch a YouTube video. We think you can go to the love doctor and then take a proficiency test and just go for it, right? But the love that is God is a love that can only be learned, It can only be learned as we let it be unleashed within us. God is perfecting each one of us. He's perfecting our awareness of his love, of our belovedness through our love of one another. The two are inseparable. God reveals his love, in other words, through relationship. That's how it was with Jesus, right? We know what love is because God came down in Jesus Christ, and so it continues with Jesus being with us now through the Holy Spirit. We encounter, we are perfected in love as we share the love that we receive through our engagement with him by the Holy Spirit. What really hits me is that for John, the sign of spiritual maturity, if you were to summarize for John what is spiritual maturity, his answer is so different than what we normally come up with. For John, the sign of spiritual maturity, the indication of our developing completeness or fullness in Christ is not measured by our age. It's not how long we've been a Christian or how long we've been a church member. It's not by the places we've served in the church. It's not by our knowledge of the facts and figures of the Bible. For John, the sign of spiritual maturity, the witness of our maturing in Christ is the intimacy of our knowledge, not about God, but our knowledge of God expressed through our heart, our love of one another. For me, I boil it down to this, and this is, this, is, this, is, this is, I've been chewing on this for a couple of days. What I hear John saying, taking all this and trying to break it down, is when we claim to love someone, when we say, I love you, what John is teaching us, what John has revealed to us this morning, when we claim to love someone, when we say, I love you, we are invoking the character. We are representing God to the other person. In our gracious encounter with that person, we are not only expressing, sharing God's love for them, we are receiving and more deeply experiencing God's love for us. Imagine if you were as reverent and as cautious to use the word love, I love you, as you are to invoke the name of God. We are, and when we say I love you, we are imparting to that person not only God's love for them, but also we are receiving in that and experiencing more deeply God's love for us. But that also means the opposite is true. Please hear this. When we don't communicate I love you, 
When we don't communicate I love you, we are basically representing to that person God can't and God doesn't love them. And for John, not to love another person, to deny him or her the love of God, is to condemn that person. And in condemning that person, in so doing, we are rejecting God's love for us and condemning ourselves. Wow. Wow. It makes me think about who I say I love you to. Maybe for some of you, you even struggle to say that you love someone else. They know. Makes me think about the people who I intentionally don't say I love you too. You know what I mean by intentional, right? I play nice. You know, I know how to, I know how to be politically correct or do different things, but I'm not gonna say the, you know, the L word. What if all of a sudden I recognize that every time I invoke that word, I'm invoking the very presence, the person of God, imparting it, experiencing it. And what if I stop and I think that every time I hold that back, every time I hold it back because I don't, you know, I'm, a, I'm kind of, you know, I'm, you know, they know, I don't wanna have to say it and get real. Or if I don't say it because I'm angry, I realize I'm, I'm withholding the person, the presence of God from another person. And I'm withholding the person, person and presence of God from myself. John has shown us today, quite powerfully, how all our definitions of love are imperfect. They're imperfect because God exceeds them. Whatever God's love is, it cannot be less than human love. But it is definitely so much more. And I need to hear that. I need to hear that because before the undeniable injustice, the very real hatred, and the constant suffering that surrounds us, I can be tempted to lose hope. I can be tempted to remain in despair, to think that love is just a pipe dream. Sometimes maybe you can relate. I can't help but wonder if this, the struggle amidst the, amid the brokenness of this world, that struggle, the struggle to love, to try to love each other, is as good as it gets. And then I open my Bible, and then I turn to John, and in the face of all that seems impossible to me, the Bible assures us God gets the last word. And John adds on to that and tells me and tells us that that last overcoming and victorious word is love. My friends, together let's encounter this word made flesh, this love, this God who is unexpected, right? Who comes to us in Bethlehem and dies for us on Calvary as the exact opposite of what we thought we'd get. Let us live without fear or reservation because when all is said and done, when the final reckoning comes, the judge we stand before will be the one who made the first move to show love, to embrace lust as love in Christ. Let us shake off the name unlovable. You may not even be aware you're wearing it. Shake off the name unlovable. Refuse that as your identity. Refuse that identity that is so often put on you by the world. And instead, let us claim the name beloved that was given to us, that is given to us again and again by God. And in claiming this identity, let us live out of it. Let us extend the love we have been given, reflecting the reality of Jesus to all those who are covered by darkness, overwhelmed with fear, and facing injustice. Let us represent in word and deed the truth that God, the Alpha and the Omega, is love. And therefore, love too is the beginning and end of all things, the breathtaking start 
and the grand finale of the story of salvation. This, beloved, is the gospel, and it's the best news there could ever be. Amen.